All right, so we begin chapter 23. We're in the home stretch. Um, and there, there's a few chapters here as we finish up tonight that I'm going to spend more time on, and then there are some which I will perhaps gloss over a little bit more, not unlike perhaps what I've done in the past. Um, so at this point, um, this girl and her disgusting family um, is exposing Bob to uh, more and more Christians every day. And so he's saying, okay, we can't really remove spirituality. It's fairly well embedded in him now. And he's surrounded by other Christians and spiritual people. So once you surround yourself with that, it reinforces, you know, your own spirituality, etc. So uh, Screwtape is saying, since we can't get rid of it, the, the goal is to corrupt it. He says, a spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. Um, and one of the ways that, um, one of the ways in which he can corrupt or the devils will corrupt um, somebody's faith is to turn Jesus from essentially God to what is known as the historical Jesus, okay? And you, you've heard me say before that in the late 19th century, early, early 20th century, uh, scripture study took on a sort of scientific um, methodology where um, there became, you know, concepts like the historical Jesus, you know, looking at things like authorship in the scriptures, etc. And so one of the um, one of the effects of that is when Jesus is merely looked at as a historical person, it, re you know, of course, it, it removes all of the objective notions about him which are divine and just places him in this sort of a historical context. And so if he can just be, you know, a great teacher or a great humanitarian, etc., or he can be Marxian or, so, or a revolutionary, if that's all he is, then you overhumanize him. You get sort of a, what's called in Christology, you get more of a low Christology. A high Christology is going to focus more on divinity. A low Christology is going to focus more on, on humanity. Um, but, but really, you go even lower than that by, by essentially taking away pretty much all of his divinity. And so that's where, that's where we've come to get all these notions of, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but he's not God. Or, you know, he, he's, a, he's a great man, just like uh, Buddha and Muhammad, and who historically was not a great man. But, um, you know, he's this great uh, religious sort of teacher, but he's not more than that, right? This is a relatively modern concept. Um, so... Um, and, and then at Lewis's time, this would have been kind of a big deal, all right? Um, it's, it's sort of ebbed a little bit since then, but, but for reasons which I shan't get into at this time. So, move to the next page there. We thus distract men's minds from who he is and what he did. Number one, we first make him solely a teacher. Number two, then conceal the very substantial agreement between his teachings and those of all other great moral teachers. For humans must not be allowed to notice that all great moralists are sent by the enemy not to inform men, 
but to remind them to restate the primeval moral platitudes against our continual concealment of them. Uh, th this is something he'll get into with uh, the abolition of man, uh, but he's basically talking about natural law, that, that within the human heart is embedded um, certain, a certain knowledge of right and wrong. And so that what he's, what he's screw tape is saying is, we'll corrupt this knowledge that really what Jesus is saying is, and what he's teaching, while it's, it's new and it, and it brings other ideas to completion, it's, it's also very much, in, there's this continuum of, of truth, okay? Um, and so he says, we make the sophists, the sophists, and he raises up a Socrates to answer them, right? The sophists uh, who are basically like bad lawyers, um, there are good lawyers, but the bad lawyers would be ones who have no scruples and no concept of truth. They just argue to win, right? And so a sophist is one who just tries to win. They don't really care about truth. They just try to win the argument by any means necessary. You can, of course, read the sophists with uh, all of the other pre-Socratics, um, those philosophers who came before Socrates. And then, of course, you can read Socrates, um, who uh, we know, of course, through you know, the writings of Plato, although the authorship, never mind, doesn't matter. I'll tell, talk about that later. But the point is that Socrates comes along and, uh, especially with the sophists, completely reduces their arguments to rubble. So what, what uh, Screwtape is basically saying is, we raise up somebody who has corrupted thought and God raises up somebody who, who counters all of that, who's, who's reasonable. The third aim, by these constructions is to destroy the devotional life. For the real presence of the enemy, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot be worshipped. So what happens when there's no devotional life? And devotional life is, is to be understood, especially as Catholics, and I'm sure he would have understood it similarly, Devotional life is largely different than liturgical life. Liturgical life is generally a corporate worship, okay? Devotional life is uh, saying, uh, uh, saying the rosary, you know, praying individual prayers, praying a chaplet of mercy, that sort of thing. It tends to be sort of a one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, devotional life is by its nature not really a corporate thing, although it can be done corporately, you know, in a group. Um, but when you speak of a, of a person's devotional life, you're generally speaking of the type of prayer which really uh, focuses on their relationship with Jesus, okay? That, that, that very direct relationship with Jesus, which that experience in prayer is much different than the experience of going to Mass, right? Mass is different because we're doing something together and it's harder to kind of pour your emotions into it. It's harder to... Um, get that sort of intimacy. I'm not saying you can't get it. I'm just saying it's, it's more, generally more difficult. So when you destroy the devotional life, then you're obviously taking something very intimate um, away you know, from that person. Fourthly, besides being unhistorical in the Jesus it depicts, religion of this kind is false to history in another sense. No nation 
and few individuals are really brought into the enemy's camp by the historical study of the biography of Jesus, simply as biography. The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, the redemption. Right? Jesus rose from the dead and he redeemed us from our sins. Operating on a sense of sin which they already had. So they knew they needed to be redeemed and they knew that the resurrection did this. And they knew that something had to be done for their own sinfulness. Not against some new fancy dress law produced as a novelty by a great man, but against the old platitudinous universal moral law which they had been taught by their nurses and mothers. The Gospels come later and were written not to make Christians, but to edify Christians already made. Which is true, right? The, the writings of the New Testament come after you already have the church. The church exists, the Catholic church exists well before any of the scriptures are written. Um, St. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, right? A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Who is he writing to? Just random Corinthians? No. The group of Christians, Catholics, in Corinth. And then the letter gets sent to Corinth. And they're like, hey, we got a letter from Paul. Let's read it. So they read it. And then uh, the th in Thessalonica, they're like, hey, we got one too. You want to copy yours and we'll copy ours and we'll, you know, sure, we'll do that. So then now they get to read in Corinth what they read in Thessalonica or Thessalonia and, uh, and vice versa. And then the letters go around and around and around. And that's how eventually we get, ultimately, you know, it revolves or evolves into a New Testament. Um, but nobody, his point is, nobody is converted. I mean, this is Lewis's point, and this is also Screwtape's point, uh, because it's true. People are not generally converted by reading about just a biography of Jesus as a biography. They're converted because they believe he's God. There's no reason to be converted if he's just a man. So if you can reduce Christianity or faith to just sort of you know, looking at Jesus, I used to say this in scripture class because in seminary we had a uh, professor who was part of this historical, like he was one of the, one of the main guys, <laughs> or he was certainly an adherent to the historical Jesus and the study of Jesus like this. And, you know, and I, I, when I was in seminary, I said, this is like studying Jesus in a Petri dish or the scriptures in a Petri dish. You know, it's just the scientific piecing things, you know, taking things apart. And, but it wasn't studied like it was living. You know, like it was divine revelation. And that takes all of the, all of the, really the goodness, you know, out of it. It just makes it sort of a, a scientific sort of textbook. The historical Jesus then, however dangerous he may seem to be to us at some particular point, is always to be encouraged. About the general connection between Christianity and politics, our posi position is more delicate. Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life. For the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want to make men treat Christianity as a means, not an end. All right. So a person uh, is a Christian because of what it can do for or for what it can be put at the service of. So a person is a Christian because uh, there are many works of mercy they can bring about in serving the poor as opposed to serving the poor as an extension of their Christianity 
um, Christianity is just sort of put at the service of something else. Or, you know, like somebody who goes to church on Sunday because they network with all the other, uh, you know, wealthy people at church and they, they want to get to know people. It's the place to be. So they go to church because it's just another networking function. So it's a, it's a means to another end. Okay. As soon as Christianity becomes a means, then it's, it's fairly worthless. All right, moving to 24. Um, okay, so this is kind of a, a nuanced thing. And I'm sure you've noticed that a number of these are, which is kind of scary. Um, but he says there is a chink in this, this woman who, you know, his, his, his fiance. Are they married yet? I can't remember. Did they get married? Petra, did they get married? Do you remember? I can't remember if they got married. All right, those of you at home, we don't know. So <laughs> I think they're still engaged. All right, anyway, so there's this woman, right, who, who Screwtape just completely loathes. And um, so he says, well, there is one chink in her armor, which is, um, and it's very, very small. And, and for her, it's so small that it's, it's venial at best. Um, but this assumption that outsiders who do not share her belief are really too stupid and ridiculous, okay? But again, this is not such a, a large uh, sentiment that for her that it's, it's a matter of pride. But what the proposal is uh, for Screwtape is see if that sentiment that she has, anybody outside of their group is you know, too stupid or ridiculous. See if you can take that little sentiment and somehow get Bob to incorporate that into himself and make it a big deal so that it basically turns into um, the worst of all uh, vices, which is spiritual pride. And he says this, it's always the novice who exaggerates. The man who has risen in society is over-refined. The young scholar is pedantic. In this new circle, your patient is a novice. He is there daily, meeting Christian life of a quality he never before imagined, and seeing it all through in a chanted glass because he is in love. He is anxious, indeed the enemy commands him to imitate this quality. Can you get him to imitate this defect in his mistress and to exaggerate it until what was venial in her becomes in him the strongest and most beautiful of the vices? Spiritual pride. All right, so the, the whole idea here is, and, and again, this, this, I'm sure you may have seen this, you may have seen it in yourself, um, I've seen it in myself, that especially early on when somebody comes into something new, but let's use Christianity, and they come into Christianity, and it, for them, they're all of a sudden, they're, they're they, they find themselves really attracted to Christianity and the truth that it provides, the truth of the church, the certitude of the church. And they, um, you know, they just throw themselves into learning more and more about it and learning why everybody else is wrong and stupid. You know, all those stupid Protestants and all those stupid Jews and all the stupid, you know, uh, Muslims and all the stupid, you know, on and on and on because they're in love with what they've found. You know, they, they, they found this great thing, and it is a great thing. They found this great thing, but now 
because they're so in love with it, they're not yet secure in it. They're still actually very insecure in this newfound reality. But what they become you know, enraptured with is the certitude and truth that's there. And so what's so easy for them to do as a way to deal with their own insecurity on a personal level is to bash other people with it, you know, to, to raise themselves up. So if I bash other people with all the reasons why they're wrong, you know, all these, all these dumb Baptists who got it wrong or, you know, uh, whatever, you know, like, you know, and, and you get older and you're like, just leave them alone, you know, like, what have the Baptists really done to you? You know, there's, <laughs> they're, seem like pretty nice people. So, not that all of them are, but as a religion, you know. Um, now, there was a time where there was a little bit more bloodshed, but thankfully we're past that, largely. <laughs> largely, hopefully we don't have anybody who remembers that. Um, but what, a, what, as he says, a novice will do is early on in the faith, this is because they're so focused on their idealism and the idealism of the church, but they also have within themselves an unsettled faith. They're not actually sure which is all the more reason why they just keep hammering about the truth and the truth and the truth of the church and everybody else is wrong and stupid. If you can get them to that, spiritual pride, you've got them halfway to hell, basically. Which isn't what he says, but this is the great danger of, especially, you know, it's one thing to think ourselves better than another person, that's pride and that's already in the category of the worst sins. But when we use our faith to elevate ourselves above everyone else who's not Catholic. And then when we use our Catholicism to elevate ourselves above all of the bad Catholics, because we're the good Catholics, holy cow, that person has really created a, a problem for themselves. You know, all those liberal Catholics down in, in Ash Fork, you know, <laughs> as opposed to us conservatives up here in, in Williams and God can only help those people out in Seligman. Who knows what they think, you know? <laughs> so there's, there's a few biases, right, going on there. But, but this kind of thing um, I've seen many, many times. And I, I've even, when I was younger, participated in it. And now I understand why, because it's, some of it is somewhat developmental. Um, until a person actually becomes, you know, really secure in their faith, they really, it's really difficult for them to move beyond that. Um, and this is why it can be a danger for them. Um, okay, moving on. 25. Horror of the same old thing. Um, we want, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the New Order, Christianity and Faith Healing, Christianity and Psychical Research, Christianity and Vegetarianism, Christianity and Spelling Reform. <laughs> if they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. Um, and so he begins to talk about how, how all of nature and our lives are created with both permanence and change. You know, we, we have the seasons, but they're always the same seasons. Um, we have 
you know, likewise the, the calendar year, but, and it changes date to date to date and month to month, but it's always the same calendar year, et cetera. So there's this balance between change and, and rhythm that comes within life. And so if we, can, um, if we can change in the person, in Bob, the natural pleasantness of change and twist it into a demand for absolute novelty, then what's happened again, just like everything else we've read, it's a corruption of what is good. So, so the goodness of, of you know, change that occurs throughout nature or throughout a person can be corrupted into novelty in such, in such a way where um, a person always has to have what's novel, what's new, right? As opposed to uh, the same old thing. So uh, this is what, uh, this is what uh, basically lies behind Apple. <laughs> you know, Apple computers, yeah. phones, such iPhones, you know, the new iPhone is out because it has a processor that is at least 10% faster than the last processor. And it has more pixels on the screen. This is you, right, with your iPhone. All right, so this very much appeals to probably then my generation and younger, right? Some of us in here. And uh, it's the novelty. But I'm sure that, I'm sure that, you know, other generations have been corrupted by the, the concept of novelty as well. At a certain point, I think you get to, you get to a point where you realize that it's just, it's just the same old stuff over and over, you know. But having the new shoes or the new glasses or the new this or the new that, and so you keep getting somebody focused on novelty, the newness of something, for the sake of newness. And there's a certain emptiness in that. Um, always chasing after what's novel. Now, when you apply that to uh, faith, religion, the practice of, of the faith, you know, you have something like, um, well, that church is boring. I want to go to the church that has the exciting music or the exciting priest or the novel this or the novel that, which is why you all come to church here. <laughs> because the novelty of your current priest well, actually, you know, to some degree, you, you all are very much insulated from that. And it, that's a really good thing because you're stuck. Um, you don't have many options. That you're just stuck. Um, but, you know, down in the valley, I would see this a lot, that people would just, they would just church hop um, for whatever fix. They were, like, uh, they were like spiritual junkies. They just needed the next emotional fix. So they would, they would go to whatever church made them feel good. Because that's the goal, was the novelty of it. And then when they tired of that church, they would find another church. And I'm not saying that a person should not go to a church where they're spiritually fed. I think they should. And, um, and in fact, if somebody came to me, I mean, I hope they wouldn't do it, just out of sheer politeness. But if they came to me and said, Father, I get nothing out of your homilies, and I don't, I don't really like your masses at all, but I like this other church, what do you think I should do? Well, I won't, I won't tell you what I would probably tell them right away in my head, but <laughs> I can't put it on tape. Um, but, but if some, well, let's say somebody was doing that at some other church, you know, and they came to me. That's happened before. People generally are more polite than that. 
And, and so they've come to me and they've said, well, Father, I really get something out of your mass and I'm at this other place and I'm not getting anything out of it. And, you know, and I'll say, well, it's important to, to consider whether you ought to stay at your current church or not. But, you know, if there's, if there's real reasons for, for thinking that you can't be spiritually fed there, be fed there, then okay, fine. But if it's just chasing novelty or newness, which I also see, just sort of a new thing. And one of the things, oh, this is what you'll see a lot. Well, you won't see it. I see it. Um, is a personal, like, just show up at the, the church, and then you, you meet them, and they're very excited to see you. Never having seen them before, but they've come to a few masses. They're really, really excited until Father, I don't know, says no to them or until Father says something they didn't like. Pew, they're gone. They're off to the next church, you know, for the next novelty. So there's a danger in this because a person, you know, there, there's a number of different ways in which this could be manifest. But, but, but the, the danger is that a person it just keeps ch chasing, and it's really like drugs. They, they just keep chasing this fix that they never, they never find, you know, it never fills them. And... Um, Ultimately, I think what, what you probably end up recognizing is that, like even with priests, you know, each priest has certain strengths and weaknesses. And the best thing parishioners can do is say, well, this guy's got these strengths, and the last guy had those strengths, but he's not coming back. So we got this guy, sorry, and he's got these strengths, so let's just focus on what he has, you know, and what's good, and let's just try to, let's try to do that. Um, and that's hard for the people. You know, it's hard. I, I understand that. I recognize that for all of you as well. Um, it's also hard for the priest. Well, some priests, you know, it's a little bit hard for me, but it's not really. Um, actually, no, that part's not hard. That, moving is hard, but being the new guy isn't hard. I, I'm pretty tough now, really crusty and all that. Okay, does that make sense? Oh, I'd love to make more commentary about fashion, but um, I'll save that for, you'll get that in a homily sometime. Oh, we're on to, okay, my next folder here. Chapter 26. Um, okay, so he's talking about in some way, um, beginning to corrupt this relationship between Bob and, and uh, Betty. And uh, one of the ways that this can be corrupted is instead of, is by playing word games. Instead of focusing on charity, work, focus on what's called unselfishness or what they call unselfishness, which is different than charity. Charity is not, okay, you can have, I'll let you have your way. Charity is, I'm going to try to bring about the good for you, which may not be what your way is, may not be what the other person necessarily wants. When a wife puts his husband, her husband on a diet, he probably doesn't want it, but charity might demand that she do it. You know, or I'm just trying to think of a, I'm not married, I don't, I'm not sure what women do, but I just presume that's one of the awful things they do to their husbands. They're going on a diet. <laughs> But this would be an act of, you know, this would be an act of charity to, to make him do this. Be 
because it's his good, but it, it may not be what he wants, okay? So it's different from being unselfish. Now, he has a really interesting, uh, uh, it's a couple interesting thoughts here. Um, um, and so he says one of, the, one of the great things we've built up in men and women is this divergence of view about unselfishness. He says this. I don't know. You can tell me if, what you think of this. A woman means by unselfishness chiefly taking trouble for others, you know, doing things for them. Being unselfish for a woman, he says, or Lewis says, has come to mean chiefly taking trouble to do things for someone else. But a man means not giving trouble to others, leaving them alone. Now, as a man, that generally sounds right, that when men think of being unselfish, they mean, ah, just leave them alone, let them do, you know. Well, you can see what happens then if, if this becomes the view, uh, the corrupted view within a, a relationship. As a result, a woman who is quite far gone in the enemy's service, a good Christian woman, will make a nuisance of herself on a larger scale than any man except those whom our father has dominated completely. And conversely, a man will live long in the enemy's camp before he undertakes as much spontaneous work to please others as a quite ordinary woman may do every day. Thus, while the woman thinks of doing good offices and the man of respecting other people's rights, each sex, without any obvious reason, can and does regard the other as radically selfish. So, um, okay, I've talked to lots of women about their husbands, probably more women than I've talked to men about their wives. Because a, because a man is going to be, oh, I don't want to bother father. But a woman's like, i got to talk to father about my husband. And you know what they, men, do you know what they complain about? I'm not saying any of you here. I'm saying it down in the valley. <laughs> what the woman, what the women, the woman, the women report, have reported to me over the years is they just wish, a few things, they just wish that their husbands would do things that, you know, either without them having to remind them and, and just do things like, I just wish he'd help me more around the house. I just wish he would you know, help me with the kids when he comes home from work and he just never wants to. Or he doesn't seem to ever want to bother with me. He doesn't ever want to seem to, to do something spontaneous or nice for me, like take me out to dinner. Or So a lot of my time has been spent trying to teach guys, this is crazy that I do this, but trying to teach these husbands how to be more thoughtful for their wives and to be more proactive in doing things for their wives that are more spontaneous. Um, because the men largely, we don't have any children here tonight, the men largely complain that their wives never want to be intimate with them. To which I say, take out the garbage. <laughs> Do the dishes. Make dinner. Draw her a bath. Send her a beautiful card spontaneously that she's going to get in the mail come home with flowers every once in a while. This is what they're kind of looking for. And they're like, <laughs> really? Yeah. Before you leave for home, call her on the phone and say, honey, is there anything I can do before I come home? Is there anything you need? This is what they're looking for. 
and it's the last thing a lot of men think about. But what, who am I to, I'm celibate. I don't know anything about relationships. <laughs> but women, do you find that to be kind of true? That that would be something, you know, over the years, that those are the things that, it's usually these little things that, that you know, women ultimately love their men to do. Um, okay. And vice versa, women nag a lot. <laughs> and, and, some women nag a lot. Let me, let me change that because I don't want any men poking their wives right now. Um, and so sometimes a man just has to be let alone. Sometimes you just got to leave him alone, you know. When he's going out in the garage every time, every night, and, you know, he doesn't want to talk, that's a cue, right? I mean, et cetera. Now, I realize these are generalizations. But there's a reason they're generalizations, because there's often an element of truth there. Okay, and so what Screwtape is proposing here is use these things against them. You know, begin to, to have the man see the wife being spontaneous as nagging. Begin for him to, to see that as, why can't, you know, why can't she just leave me alone? <laughs> she's always bugging me, you know, as opposed to she's really just trying to demonstrate love, you know. Um, now, it may fall into, right, nagging, et cetera, if it becomes corrupted. But, um, and conversely, he never does anything for me, you know. Now, maybe if, if it's a sort of traditional setup, he, you know, he always works overtime and he works long hours and then he comes home and he's really tired, but he has an in inability to actually share his feelings with his wife, and so he ends up just sort of turning on a game and trying to unwind, but is completely sort of, clueless about, you know, participating, you know, with his wife, she begins to see that as him just withdrawing and never wanting to do anything for him, and it builds up a resentment in her. And so, you, you know, using these things against each other after, this is the other thing I've seen, is, you know, at the beginning, they're just these little stones, and then, those of you at home, I'm, I'm miming the building of a wall, and these stones... <laughs> You know, they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until at a certain point the, the spouses can no longer see each other. I've seen that a lot. Um, usually by the time people come and talk to me, it's too late. Statistically, that's true of counselors. Um, by the time a couple goes and asks for help, it's usually too late. Because somebody's stubborn. <clears throat> okay, that's good enough. I mean, you can read these chapters and get more, but this is the, this is the gist. 27. <laughs> you seem to be doing very little good at present. The use of his love to distract his mind from the enemy is, of course, obvious. But you reveal what poor use you are making of it when you say that the whole question of distraction and the wandering mind has now become one of, his chief, one of the chief subjects in his prayers. And this is fascinating. How many times people have asked me, Father, I get distracted in prayer. I mean, you know, I've, I've had people even confess this, that they're distracted in prayer. And I'll say, it's not a sin. It's just human. It's, it's normal. Well, what do I do? I don't know. Stop. Stop praying. Well, don't even start over. Just go do something else. So, for instance, 
people will say, well, I'm going to pray a rosary every day or, you know, and they pray their rosary and they get to the third, the third uh, decade and all of a sudden they get very, very frustrated. They're focused on something else. And uh, so they'll, they'll ask me, well, do I just power through? My suggestion is just stop. Just go do something else. There's no reason you can't finish the last two another time. Or do you have to do the whole thing? Like the point of the prayer is not necessarily getting through the whole thing. Okay, fine, I got through the whole thing. <laughs> but the last two were really miserable, you know, really hard. The other thing I've done uh, personally is I'll, I'll, keep a, I'll keep a little notepad near where I pray. Because often when I get distracted, um, I'm thinking about something else that needs to get done. So I keep a little pad and I'll just write it down. And then I know that it's there, you know, and I can leave it alone and I can go back to my prayer, etc. Anyway. Okay. He says, once again, <laughs> Wormwood, you failed. When this or any other distraction crosses his mind, you ought to encourage him to thrust it away by sheer willpower and try to continue the normal prayer as if nothing had happened. Once he accepts the distraction as his present problem and lays that before the enemy and makes it the main theme of his prayers and endeavors, then so, f- so far from doing good, you have done harm. Anything, even a sin, which has the total of effect of moving him close up to the enemy makes against us in the long run. It's very interesting. So even a sin can become a good. If the sin, this is God bringing good out of evil, if the sin brings about repentance, greater self-reflection, and determination in the spiritual life, the sin becomes actually um, a moment of growth um, toward God. And so with what he's saying here is when a person has the distractions in prayer, get them focused on the distractions. Fight against it as hard as you can to power through the prayer. Then they're more focused on the distractions than they really are on the prayer and all of the anxiety and the frustration and all the rest, and the prayer just becomes a, a mess, which is why I, I'm giving my, my opinion that if you find yourself in that state, just stop. You don't have to, I mean, you don't have to finish. What's going to happen? It's not like I'm on the treadmill, you know, yesterday, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I just I got to get 30 minutes in, 30 minutes in, 30 minutes in. I look at the time, because I was covered up, you know, because if you cover it up, it doesn't take as long. And um, look again, 13 minutes. I'm like, come on, it's at least been 20 minutes. I'm going, I'm, I got to get to 30. I want to get to 30. And then finally, I was like, forget it, 20 is enough. So I finished, just went home. Because I was like, I'm not going to obsess about having to do 10 more minutes. I'm just going to go home. 20 is good enough. Goodbye, you know. So with prayer you know, with that kind of distraction, the way that the way the distraction works against us is when we become obsessed about the distraction. And we're so focused and powering through the prayer, it's not really, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't do any good, okay, but there's nothing wrong with just saying, I'll come back to it later, you know? I'm gonna go and, and just walk or, or take some time out and I'll come back to it, I'll finish up later. No big deal, God's not counting. It's not a matter of how many rosaries you get in, He's like, okay, let's see. Okay, you can come into heaven. No, you only got 30,000 rosaries. You're to purgatory. Um, you're to, it's not the point of prayer anyway, right? The point of prayer is relationship. Relationship, ultimately. Certainly giving praise and thanks to God, but that's all about the relationship. Um, 
he begins to talk about uh, prayer and the way in which you can, uh, you know, corrupt his view of whether prayer works or not. And he says, don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it, and therefore it would have happened anyway. And thus a granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. I don't know if you, you do that, but you know, I'll have prayers that are answered all the time from, from a young age. I would say probably, probably that which affected me, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what it was, but that which affected me the most when I was like in grade school was something I prayed for for years and then it happened. And that always stuck with me. It always stuck with me. And, it, and I think from an early age that built in me faith, which I do have virtues. <laughs> I have vices, but I have virtues. And of my virtues, um, one of the strongest ones has always been faith. Just, uh, it's just always, it's never really wavered. And I think part of that has to do with the efficacy of petitionary prayer. I've just seen it happen so many times in my life that, you know, could it be construed or, or could it be explained away by just sort of natural causes? I don't think so. Because there's so many things that have happened which are unnatural. Some of them miracles, um, but, um, after a while, you know, the, the, the natural explanations just don't suffice. They just can't explain everything that happens, at least in my experience. Um, by the way, I know because of my, my work with physicians throughout the, throughout the years, lots of physicians, um, lots of Catholic physicians, um, they also admit there's all kinds of things that happen they can't explain can't explain. And, and these are really good, solid Catholic, you know, not just Catholics, just faith-filled people who are physicians or medical personnel. And they admit, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what happened. They were sick. They were dying. Then they weren't. We don't know what happened. There's no explanation for it. Um, and they can't, and they can't even, they want to find one, but they, they, they can't find it. Um, so then he moves on to uh, sort of talking about existence and time and God's omniscience, um, which is, I'll just kind of freeform this one. Um, basically, God, God knows everything. So he already knows everybody who's going to be saved in this room. He knows the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. I should say we. He knows the sins we are going to commit tomorrow. He knows the prayers we are going to say. He knows the rosary you're not going to finish because you got distracted. He knows the prayers that are going to be answered before we even pray them 10 years from now. He knows all of this stuff. So what Screwtape proposes is get him thinking about that, like well, what does it matter? In other words, if God knows it anyway, if God, in a sense, has already decided whether or not he's going to answer the prayer, then because God makes his decisions in eternity, not in time, right? So um, let's use some art here. So if we have a, if we have a, this is time, you know, time is linear. 
um, God is outside of time, so I don't really know how to draw infinity or eternity. But so we are here. So here's here's Bob. I'm now drawing a stick figure of Bob, which is the level at which my art has progressed ever since the uh, third grade. Um, Bob makes a prayer here, and these are, let's say they're 10-year increments, and then he makes a prayer here, and he makes a prayer here, and he makes a prayer here. They may or may not be answered, but God sees all of this. <laughs> God. God sees all of this in one vision, if you will. So Bob only sees this in linear time. He sees this year and this day and then the next day and then the next day and then the next day and etc. God sees all of it now. In fact, he doesn't just see the future, he sees the past now. So for God, all of time is seen right now. Um, eternity is, so all of time is eternally present to God. He sees the past, he sees the future, he sees the now, as it were. He sees all of it right now. And so um, Screwtape is saying, try to get the man focused on, well, what does it matter if I pray for it? God has already decided what he's going to answer and what he's going to not answer. He already knows what I'm going to pray. So why should I even pray if he already knows what I'm going to do? And so he, the way that Screwtape basically counters his own argument or shows us the key of it. Um, he says, why that creative act leaves room for their free will is the problem of problems, the secret behind the enemy's nonsense about love. How it does so is no problem at all. For the enemy does not foresee the humans making their free contributions in a future, but sees them doing so in his unbounded now. And obviously, to watch a man doing something is not to make him do it. So just because God sees what we're going to do doesn't mean he's making us do it, and it doesn't mean that we're any less doing it. Because for Bob, he's still making his actions day to day. He's still praying his prayers day to day. So for Bob, seeing it from the eyes of eternity doesn't really matter. And God seeing it happen doesn't mean Bob is any less doing it. Bob is still doing it. God just knows what he's going to do. But it doesn't mean that it reduces his actions from being free to being what would be called deterministic. All right, let me move on here. He talks about inculcating the historical point of view. The historical point of view, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. He asks who influenced the ancient writer and how far the statement is consistent with what he said in other books and what phrase in the writer's development or in the general history of thought it illustrates and how it affected later writers and how often it has been misunderstood and what the general course of criticism on it has been for the last 10 years, blah, 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 on and on and on. So um, one of the things that... Um, this is sort of, this is a bit of actually of a tangent for Screwtape, but one of the things that he's saying is we've, we've reduced learning or the reading of great books not to a search for truth, but 
a search for, you know, looking at sort of influences and consequences, et cetera, so that when a person goes back and reads Aristotle, I mean, I've used him before, but, you know, reads Aristotle on the concept of, of the virtues, that um, the question is not whether it's true or not. The question is, is really just sort of a, a, a critical study of it, just like looking at the historical Jesus. Um, a person looks at it and says, well, okay, well, he was influenced by Plato to some degree, um, well, to a large degree, but broke away from Plato. And, you know, his thought was lost from the West and then it influenced Thomas Aquinas, but it's virtue ethics and we don't, you know, we've largely rejected that in the West. And so it gets all muddied in this sort of education speak and people no longer really search for truth. This would be, um, you know, if you wanted to critique university life, especially in the reading of the humanities, this is a place you would go. So that, for instance, when I studied philosophy as an undergrad at Mesa Community College, the philosophers were presented to me as a historical survey. This is what this guy said, and this guy said, and this guy said, and this guy said. But never did anybody question whether there was any truth. <laughs> it was, wasn't even asked. Is it true? Was it true what they said? You know, now when I went to seminary and studied philosophy, we were very much focused on truth. We were very much, you know, critically studying the philosophers and saying, well, which, which thing seems to be true, which thing seems to be, you know, false, et cetera, which would be the, the, the more ancient tradition. Um, anyway, um, this has devolved uh, today to, in postmodernism, to what you would call narratives. You know, so the, the right has a narrative and the left has a narrative about the tax, you know, the most recent tax plan that, that was passed. And whatever narrative wins is, it's not really a matter about true. Well, what's true about the tax plan? Doesn't matter what's true. And you can see it if you watch any of the news channels. And you get the one guy, the talking head here on the left and the talking head on the right and they yell at each other what they're doing is they're asserting narrative. They're not asserting truth. All they're trying to do is have the stronger narrative through, through basically power argument. It's all about power. And if they have uh, the most sort of persuasive um, or strongest, uh, strongly stated narrative, they're sort of declared the winner. Oh, they won that one, you know? And if you watch the clips later, you know, people will be commenting and say, oh, they, you know, that person won that one. But the question isn't what's true, you know, and you'll notice that anytime politics is just su su such a great uh, exposition of what's wrong with the mind and thinking in general these days. But, but that's the focus is narrative now. It's not truth. It's just how does it, how can we render this, you know, bad for the right and positive for the left and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's not just in that, it's, it's, in, it's in all of the identity stuff and et cetera. Okay, 28, he's saying you don't want him to die. Wormwood thinks it'd be good if he died. Uh, Screwtape says don't let him die, he's too close to God essentially. He'll, almost, he'll be certainly lost if he's killed tonight. What you want is for him to survive the war. You want him to survive the bombings. You don't want him to die early. Dying early is actually uh, better 
for, for God. More people are going to go to heaven when they die early. What you want is somebody to live a long life. He says, if, if only he can be kept alive. You have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. It's so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it, all this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove pro prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and, agree and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home on earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. There's not many middle-aged and old soldiers. The young are willing to die. They're willing to risk their lives. The, the middle-aged and the older, wanna, they, they often want to secure their lives, right? They've grown very fond of their life on earth for whatever reason, which I don't understand. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. It's not morbidity either. It's not me being morbid. It's not my dark German sense of humor. I'm ready. Take me. God keeps saying, no, get to work. I keep saying, I, in, in you, I want to rest. And this is not a bad thought. It's not a bad thought at all. You know, it's, it's, it's a relatively new thing that we would be, that we would live into old age, 70s or 80s. And that's, that's a relatively new concept, right? For centuries, it never happened. Okay. So the whole idea here, build up a firm attachment to earth. The more that you build up in the person an attachment to earth, the less they want to leave it. Which doesn't mean you're saying, Father wants to die. I don't want to die. I'm ready to die. I don't really want to die. And I would hope that it was quick and not painful, but I got a feeling it's not going to work that way. But it's not for lack of love or joy or none of that. It's just, why not? You know, what, what would be so bad about dying? It's an interesting thing to think about. Not from, I mean, if a person is depressed, don't think about this. <laughs> so you're having trouble. I'm not trying to get you out the easy way. I'm just, I'm just saying that, like, if, if God is who he says he is and salvation is what it's supposed to be, then we should kind of be okay with the idea that if our time is now, then it's now. We should actually be okay with that. And if we're kind of not, you know, I think it's something to look at, you know, and keep in balance, it should be balanced, but anyway. All right, somebody's gonna, I'm gonna get thrown in some place with padded walls soon. So, so 29, um, you know, if we can build up, we, we, we don't want somebody to, 
uh, again, you know, the, the Germans are bombing England and um, Bob is in danger of dying. So what can, what can Wormwood do with Bob? Well, try to build up fear and hatred. Um, if you can build up fear and hatred, you may be able to get him to cowardice. Um, if you can get him ashamed of it. Um, but you, d you definitely don't want to get him to, to, to courage. If you get him to courage, um, again, that's, this is a virtue. Um, but he says, this is a difficult business. We have made men proud of most vices, but not of cowardice. No one's proud of that. Whenever we have almost succeeded in doing so, the em enemy permits a war or an earthquake or some other calamity. And at once, courage becomes so obviously lovely and important, even in human eyes, all that all work, ah, even in human eyes, that all our work is undone. And there is still at least one vice of which they feel genuine shame. The danger of inducing cowardice in our patients, therefore, is, is lest we produce real self-knowledge and self-loathing with consequent repentance and humility. And in fact, in the last war, World War I, thousands of humans, by discovering their own cowardice, discovered the whole moral world for the first time, which actually brought them closer to God because it brought about self-knowledge, okay? Um, and, the, and this is true, right? When, remember when the, uh, with Houston and the flooding and, you know, there were, there were uh, great acts of heroism and people helping each other out and, you know, it's always inspiring. You know, it's always inspiring. And then there was a one guy who like didn't open up his church for everybody right away and the big old controversy and I, maybe the guy had good reasons, I don't know, but whatever. But everybody just thought he was, I mean, it, immediately everybody became um, objective relative to virtue. Like everybody was like, that's wrong. You know, in a world that never does that, never wants to say anything is wrong. All of a sudden that's wrong and that's good. Like. You know, so when there's tragedy and that sort of thing, the point is things become very black and white regarding morality, uh, especially regarding fear and cowardice and, and courage. This indeed is probably one of the enemy's motives for creating a dangerous world, a world in which moral issues really come to the point. He sees as well as you do that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. Um, I've, I've uh, had this sort of discussion with parents. Um, I've challenged parents throughout the years because sometimes parents will really protect, overprotect their children, is what I would say. So, you know, here we're on a bit of an opinion here. But the reason I would challenge them with overprotecting their children, which, which I would say is this, always keeping their children in sort of safe environments where they never have to deal with bad people. They never have to deal with mean kids. They never have to deal with kids who don't go to church all the time or, um, you know, uh, they never have to deal with kids who are mean to them, or they never have to deal with kids who say bad words or things like that. Um, the problem is when a child never has to encounter 
something which will necessitate their courage to, to, be, to be virtuous, they never actually increase their virtue. So you cannot grow in virtue in a vacuum. All right, so a lot of times parents will shelter their kids from all as many outside influences as possible, but then their kids never had the opportunity to practice fortitude or practice truthfulness or practice standing up to somebody who is being mean or do you see what I mean? So if you never have the opportunity to actually use a virtue, you don't grow in virtue either. So a child who's been sheltered from the ability to, to use their courage to practice a virtue hasn't developed the virtues. They, they, they may still be innocent, which is often what the parents desire, but they're not prepared to, be, to have moral courage, which is called fortitude, one of the, the four cardinal virtues. And so, so ourselves, we, if you're not tempted to be unchaste, you won't be chaste. You won't grow in the virtue of chastity because you're never tempted. Simply denying a person the opportunity to be unchaste doesn't really give them the virtue of chastity. It just means they haven't had the opportunity yet. This is why so many kids who were sheltered go to college and party hard. And I've seen that a lot because they don't have the fortitude. They can't say no, can't say no. They've been sheltered, setting them up for failure. I understand this is somewhat controversial, um, but from a, from a moral development perspective, that's just true. Um, so anyway, okay, two more chapters and we are through. Ah, number 30. So he says, uh, the report of Bob's behavior during the first raid has been the worst possible. He has been very frightened and thinks that he's a great coward and therefore feels no pride, which means he's humble, but he has done everything his duty demanded and perhaps more. So he did everything he was supposed to do, which means he was courageous, but he was scared when he did it, so he thinks he's a coward. But of course he was scared. There's bombs all around him. Of course he was scared, but he was still dutiful, which means he was actually courageous. But he, he's humble because he recognizes that he was afraid, that he wasn't this great. Well, who wouldn't be afraid, you know? Okay. Um, so anyway, he's, he's remarking about Wormwood complaining about his difficulties. If you are proceeding on the enemy's idea of justice and suggesting that your opportunities and, and intentions should be taken into account, then I am not sure that a charge of heresy does not lie against you. At any rate, you will soon find that the justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or be food yourself. So he talks about fatigue. The only thing that's encouraging in his report is that uh, Bob was fatigued at times. <laughs> you notice too the pettiness with which we're now devolving. Like all the big stuff has kind of been taken away. And so now Screwtape is sort of grasping at, all right, well, okay, there's fatigue. All right, see if we can turn his fatigue into, you know, um, something that produces anger because of unexpected demands on, on a man who's already tired. So see if you can 
and this kind of goes back to an earlier chapter where he talks about a person viewing their time as their time, that it really belongs to them. But to produce the best results from the patient's fatigue, you must feed him with false hopes. Put into his mind plausible reasons for believing that the air raid will not be repeated. Keep comforting himself with the thought of how much he will enjoy his, his bed next night, etc. And then when he doesn't get what he anticipates, the fatigue will lead to anger and maybe that'll lead to more sin, etc. Okay. Probably the scenes he is now witnessing will not produce material for an intellectual attack on his faith. Your previous failures have put that out of your power, but there is a sort of attack on the emotions which can still be tried. It turns on making him feel. When first he sees human remains plastered on a wall, that is, that this is what the world is really like and that all his religion has been a fantasy, you will notice that we have got them completely fogged about the meaning of the real world. So the idea here is to, to basically get him to be focused on the real world, which really means how he feels about the real world, as opposed to facts about what the real world is. Okay, so if you can get a person focused on, what shall we say, life doesn't feel fair, my relationship with my husband or my family doesn't feel right. Um, so that everything becomes a subjective determination of the person's emotions. Then they begin to equate their subjective feelings with reality, which can become a, a sort of danger zone because a person gets completely pulled away from what's actually true and what's merely subjective in their emotions. And we know how our emotions are up and down and all over the place. And so if you can get a person attached to just their emotional state, and some people are this way, some people are just wired this way, where um, their emotion, their, basically their emotional life is their reality. And you know, they, they often are really tiring people because their, their emotions are up and down and all over the place. And now you may be one of those persons and um, and it probably wears you out too, if you're one of those persons, because it wears us out. <laughs> because it's hard, because the emotion, I mean, just up and down, and because everything is, everything is, you know, extreme. Extreme happiness, extreme sadness, and just back and forth and back and forth. And if you live that way, there, there can be, I want to fill you with some hope, there can be liberation, but you, you've got you've to look for it. Um, um, but it, but it's something to it's something to look at because then it means that you're the way you look at the world You know you look, the way you look at relationships the way you look at God. It's always the extreme, you know, it's always Awesome or it's crap, you know, it's just horrible It's just wonderful. It's amazing. Oh, it's so bad. Everything's horrible um, That sort of you know <laughs> that sort of uh, um, those sort of extremes um, usually for a person are wearying. You know, it's really hard to live in that kind of extreme. And it's hard for other people to, to be in that extreme as well. Um, so, but if you can get a person to be thinking in those terms, then that means the way they look at the world is, you know, up and down and just these wild swings. Um, and you can see why this can be incredibly dangerous. Okay, so I wanted to save the last chapter because I, I kind of wanted to read... I wanted to read through the whole thing, um, my, you know, so that we could we could just hear the uh, 
the thrilling conclusion in its totality. My dear, my very dear Wormwood, my poppet, my pig's knee, how mistakenly now that all is lost, you have come whimpering to ask me whether the terms of affection in which I address you meant nothing from the beginning. Far from it. Rest assured, my love for you and your love for me are like as like two peas. I have always desired you as you, pitiful fool, desired me. The difference is that I am the stronger. I think they will give you to me now, or a bit of you. Love you? Why, yes, as dainty a morsel as ever I grew fat on. You have let a soul slip through your fingers. The howl of sharpened famine for that loss re-echoes at this moment through all the levels of the kingdom of noise down to the very throne itself. It makes me mad to think of it. How well I know what happened at the instant when they snatched him from you. There was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not, as he saw you for the first time and recognized the part you had had in him and knew that you had it no longer. Just think, and let it be the beginning of your agony, what he felt at that moment, as if a scab had fallen from an old sore, as if he were emerging from a hideous shell-like tetter, as if he shuffled off for good and all a defiled wet clean garment. But by hell, it is misery enough to see them in their mortal days taking off dirty and uncomfortable clothes and splashing in hot water and giving little grunts of pleasure, stretching their eased limbs. What then of this final stripping, this complete cleansing? The more one thinks about it, the worse it becomes. He got through so easily. No gradual misgivings, no doctor's sentence, no nursing home, no operating theater, no false hopes of life, sheer instantaneous liberation. One moment it seemed to be all our world, the scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosive on the lips and in the lungs, the feet burning with weariness, the heart cold with horrors, the brain reeling, the legs aching. Next moment all this was gone, gone like a bad dream, never again to be of any account. Defeated, outmaneuvered fool, did you mark how naturally, as if he'd been born for it, the earth-born vermin entered the new life? How all his doubts became in the twinkling of an eye ridiculous? I know what the creature was saying to itself. Yes, of course, it always was like this. All horrors have followed the same course, getting worse and worse and forcing you into a kind of bottleneck till at the very moment when you thought you must be crushed, behold, you were out of the narrows and all was suddenly well. The extraction hurt more and more, and then the tooth was out. The dream became a nightmare, and then you woke. You die and die, and then you are beyond death. How could I have ever doubted it? As he saw you, he also saw them. I know how it was. You reeled back dizzy and blinded, more hurt by them than he had ever been by bombs. The degradation of it that this thing of earth and slime could stand upright and converse with spirits before whom you, a spirit, could only cower. Perhaps you had hoped that the awe and strangeness of it would dash his joy. But that is the cursed thing. The gods are strange to mortal eyes, and yet they are not strange. He had no faintest conception till that very hour of how they would look and even doubted their existence. But when he saw them, he knew that he had always known them 
and realized what part each one of them had played at many an hour in his life when he had supposed himself alone, so that now he could say to them one by one, not, who are you, but so it was you all the time. All that they were and said at this meeting woke memories. The dim consciousness of friends about him, which had haunted his solitudes from infancy, was now at last explained. That central music in every pure experience, which had always just evaded memory, was now at last recovered. Recognition made him free of their company almost before the limbs of his corpse became quiet. Only you were left outside. He saw not only them, he saw him. This animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on him. What is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him, is clarity itself, and wears the form of a man. You would like, if you could, to interpret the patient's prostration in the presence, his self-abhorrence and utter knowledge of his sins, yes, Wormwood, a clearer knowledge even than yours, on the analogy of your own choking and paralyzing sensations when you encounter the deadly air that breathes from the heart of heaven. But it's all nonsense. Pains he may still have to encounter, but they embrace those pains. They would not barter them for any earthly pleasure. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which you could once have tempted him, even the delights of virtue itself, now seem to him in comparison but as the half-nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot would have seemed to a man who hears his true beloved, whom he has loved all his life, and whom he has believed to be dead is alive and even now at his door. He is caught up into that world where pain and pleasure take on transfinite values and all our arithmetic is dismayed. Once more, the inexplicable meets us. Next to the curse of useless tempters like yourself, the greatest curse upon us is the failure of our intelligence department. If only we could find out what he is really up to. Alas, alas, that knowledge, in itself so hateful and mawkish a thing, should yet be necessary for power. Sometimes I am almost in despair. All that sustains me is the conviction that our realism, our rejection in the face of all temptations, of all silly nonsense and claptrap, must win in the end. Meanwhile, I have you to settle with. Most truly do I sign myself your increasingly and ravenously affectionate Uncle Screwtape. Now, as I was reading this last chapter earlier today, I was, I was, considering, um, I was considering a thought just, uh, you know, there are times when I, when I was reading this that I, I, was, I was just sort of trying to put together, you know, is Lewis kind of saying there are many, many, many paths that we can get to hell? Like, like, because I think at times the way that he constructed screw tapes, you know, counsel is that there's, there's all these ways we can get somebody to hell. If we only do this, if we only do this, if we only do this. And then you get to the end and you realize that, but everything they tried failed. <laughs> everything they tried failed. And even if some of it would have been successful in the end, it was never enough. It was never enough. And so from, from the perspective of, the, of the, the devil writing this, where there's this almost hope that, that these things are going to work, because of the way it's written, you know, I wonder if, 
a lot of that is also false hope because I, I think if you read a lot of Lewis, he's pretty generous with salvation. Like he, he's pretty clear that the, you know, from his perspective, which is not, uh, you know, disharmonious with Catholic teaching, from his perspective, only people who don't want to go to heaven are the ones who end up in hell. Um, that in the end, it's, it's not God who's throwing men into hell, it's men and women who throw themselves into hell because they could never stand being close to God for eternity. And so as I read this last chapter, I was thinking, you know, um, it was just kind of going through my mind that, that the futility also that the, the devils have. Because on one hand, you know, you might read this and think, gosh, they're really powerful. But from another point of view, they're really not very powerful at all. And of course, the truth probably lies in between, that, that there's certainly power and reality and temptation and the movement of evil in our lives, but that grace is infinitely more powerful than any tempting of, of any devil. And so that at our disposal, we have the sacraments and prayer and, and you know, although the Lord allows us this, this temptation, he allows us far superior weaponry. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like uh, somebody u- using bows and arrows against, against stealth bombers, you know. It, 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 Satan's weapons are very, uh, in some ways, ineffectual for a person who's, who's taking advantage of the weapons that God has, namely grace and et cetera. So, the reason I bring this out is because um, as I read Lewis um, and as I, as I look at the Christian faith, as I look at the scriptures, as I preempt, even more than Lewis, as I look at what Jesus says, you know, salvation is always gift and invitation. And it's even in the scriptures, the ones who don't come into the wedding feast are the ones who didn't answer the invitation. They're the ones who had other stuff to do. Eh, I got other stuff going on. But no, this is like the best wedding ever. And it lasts for, you know, eternity. And you can be a part of it. No, I got other stuff going on. I have other things. So that the people who really don't want salvation are the ones who just can't be bothered. You know, the ones who just, and I don't mean just sentimentality. Like, well, he was good at his heart, so maybe he went to heaven. Well, did he do anything? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying they went to hell. I'm just saying that it's difficult to know. It's difficult to know. This is why the church says we shouldn't judge, why Jesus says we shouldn't judge, and why the church says that we don't definitively really say anybody goes to heaven except for those who it's been revealed to us that have gone to heaven, namely saints. Um, so, so anyway, I think, I think a good complement to this will be uh, the great divorce because it, um, it presents that. So what the great divorce presents is what happens after death. Um, so uh, I have to be careful what to say about that. So, you know, we'll try that next and I'll, I'll, I'll get a, some information out here. We'll maybe start up within about a month or so because I think it'll be a really good reflection on that. You know, who gets into heaven? Who doesn't get into heaven? Why don't they get into heaven? Um, and why do they get into heaven? And what's it kind of like? And, you know, et cetera. Um, not that he has all of the answers, but he gives, he provides a sort of way of looking at it, which I think is, I think it's right on. I think it's spot on. I could be wrong, but it seems very consistent with the scriptures, which is 
kind of the only litmus test we, we have. So um, with that, we've concluded our last class. I hope you have a wonderful Easter and thanks for joining.